might be biased, but I've long thought that there is something unique about crime in the South. Maybe it's our colorful characters, our local yokels made good, or in this case, made bad. Maybe it's because compared to some other parts of the country, we're historically a poor area, and what other folks might call criminal activity, we just call desperation. Maybe it's the intimacy of our crime, how so often you know the folks who did it, because Southern towns, no matter how large they get, are all really just a village at heart. I don't know, the jury is still out, but either way, all those aspects come together in a remarkable book by today's guest on Crime Capsule, Janice Tracy. Tracy is the author of Mississippi Moonshine Politics, How Bootlegging and the Law Kept a Dry State Soaked. And she spent years researching illegal activity in the Magnolia State, producing an exhaustive book with some truly amazing accounts of what went on in the Prohibition era. We're privileged to have her join us for the first installment of our mini-series on books about the Dixie Mafia, or what I like to call good old boys up to no good. Now there is a content warning for this episode, not for violence, but for my accent, usually dormant, but which can't help but come out when talking to another Mississippian. Tigers and jungles, dear listeners, tigers and jungles indeed. Janice, thank you so much for joining us here on Crime Capsule. Thank you. Before we get into the meat of your book, I just wanted to ask a little bit about your background. You grew up in Mississippi, so the names and the places that you wrote about were familiar to you already, but how did you get interested enough in this material to write a book about it? It all started with the tales, and I'll call them that, family tales, stories, um, activities of a man named Tillman Branch, who is the center of the Juke Joint King book, the first book that I wrote. And once I got into writing about him and learning more about him, I never met him. I just heard all of the mostly bad things. Um, when we would have family reunions, which this side of the family didn't attend as much. Um, my grandfather and Tillman Branch's um, grandfather were siblings. So that's how we were related. And once I got into writing the book about Tillman Branch and doing the research, I found that the story of Moonshine in Mississippi, which I knew from a distance growing up in the 50s and 60s, in and around Jackson, I needed more, I need another vehicle to tell the story of illegal liquor in Mississippi. And that's when I talked to the, to the editor um, at the publishing company, the History Press, about how I could do that. So that's how I got into writing the story of illegal liquor and bootlegging and moonshine activities in Mississippi. Before you were an author, you actually had a career working as an investigator. How did that come about? It happened uh, over the years that I ended up being in an investigative job. In the beginning, when I went to work for the government in 1974, I was a Social Security claims representative. 
I took retirement and disability claims and was actually hired because Social Security Administration took over the old age and disability programs from the state called Supplemental Security Income, SSI. So I took claims, used my science background that helped out with disability claims. Actually, medical terminology was easy for me and understanding that gradually I had gain the journeyman position in my job level. And if you want more money with the government, then you have to, quote unquote, bid on jobs at a higher grade level. So a job opening became available in Metairie, Louisiana. And eventually that office was in New Orleans. So I applied for and got that job to be a social security investigator. And this was quality review and analysis and adjusting people's checks and not out-and-out fraud investigations, but finding indications of fraud. And that got me into the investigating field, and later I applied for a job as a criminal and civil investigator uh, because of people that I had met in New Orleans where I worked. And I worked for Department of Labor as a criminal and civil investigator investigating embezzlement and election violation allegations. That later got me into applying for a job with the Environmental Protection Agency where I was hired as a civil investigator and later became an enforcement officer. So I've been an investigator beginning in 1981 and retired doing that same kind of work. I had a 30-plus year career with the federal government. And because I did criminal investigations with Department of Labor, then I had um, a little bit different kind of research activities that I participated in because we were developing uh, cases to get indictments and to take to court where people would receive jail time. And that was a section of the law that dealt with embezzlement of labor union funds. With EPA, it was a little bit different situation with the civil investigations, but I spent my entire career looking for people, finding information about people, and what made them tick sometimes, and then what caused them to commit crimes. So it was a little bit of everything dealing with people, places, and things, and information that might not be on the surface. And that sounds like a perfect skill set for researching and writing a book. Exactly. It was just like what I had done for so long, but just a different subject matter. So let's set the stage here uh, regarding what you write about. National prohibition went into effect in 1919. We always used to joke that it was the Great Mistake, which was immediately followed by the Great Depression. (laughs) Um, But the, the temperance movement had been making headway in different states for decades prior to that. And Mississippi had actually passed its own prohibition laws already in 1909. I'm going to ask you a poorly phrased question, but I think, I think you're going to, I think you're going to see what I'm getting at. As you were researching the early days of Mississippi's prohibition, okay, we're talking 19 teens, 20s, kind of right when these laws really are coming into effect. How thirsty in general were average Mississippians 
during this time. I'm interested in your everyday sharecropper, your everyday merchant, the sort of lower class or middle class resident of the state at the time. How much are they drinking? They're drinking a lot because of the plight that they were living in life. They were poor. They didn't have control over their lives. And in many times, there was no other form of recreation, if you want to call it that, to them, or social life, except drinking on Saturday night. So there were plenty of small places that catered to people who wanted to go out and drink or listen to music. And remember, the blues music developed in places that also served liquor, bootleg in many cases, like Tillman Branch. So it was a way of life. Not, not all of the sharecroppers and the people who were work, other people who were working on the farms and the bigger farms that were still called plantation in, in those times too. But it was their Saturday night good times, a way of salving their sorrows, if you want. I'm not condoning it. I'm just stating a fact. You write early on in your book, that I'm just going to read a little quote here, that when a man, woman, or even a young minor wanted to buy alcohol of any type or size, they could do so provided they had the cash, knew where to go, and weren't afraid they would be arrested. Illegal liquor was as plentiful and available as water from the big muddy, unquote. you making the claim here that in many ways, alcohol was not just a matter of entertainment or recreation, for a lot of these folks, it was a matter of survival economically. Well, that was the other side of it, and that's why liquor was so plentiful, because people made lots of money off of it, and it wasn't just for local consumption. Liquor was moved around in different places in the state, and of course, later in the book, there is information about how Louisiana and Mississippi had relationships that involve liquor because Louisiana had different laws. And of course, then there was liquor going across the Tennessee-Mississippi state line and between Alabama and Mississippi as well. I would say, even though I didn't cover this in my book, that there was a lot of traffic beyond the Gulf Coast, even into the panhandle of Florida. But the liquor was carried in and out. It was a way to make money for people who didn't have anything else except farming. Even into World War II, where buses of local men would leave for the local induction office. And they would leave the women and the children at home on the farm. And to supplement money, some of the women even were bootlegging while the men were away at war. It was a manner of survival because easy money, easy is not the best word there because there were problems that went along with making moonshine. Dangerous type situations that evolved, and that would be from a physical standpoint with things that blew up or caught on fire or with the dangers of someone stealing or taking over or even injuring someone because of, I guess you would say, competition. Folks who have never been to Mississippi might not be aware of how geographically diverse the state is. We have the river counties, we have the delta, we got the hill country, the piney woods, and we have 
the Gulf Coast, of course, just to name a few regions, and they're all very different from one another. You write in your book that the landscape of bootlegging was just as diverse as the physical landscape with hotspots of very different kinds and concentrations in those different areas. Now, one of the major hotspots that you describe is the Gold Coast, which is a term that is not widely used in Mississippi much anymore. What, what can you tell us about the Gold Coast? The Gold Coast was a flood area by the Pearl River in Rankin County. There was a bridge that went there, and it was virtually uninhabitable back during the years that most of the activities were going on there. It was kind of no man's land. It wasn't downtown Jackson, but it was close by. It was quote-unquote East Jackson back then. Census records would show anyone living there as living in East Jackson. So it was a place where you could go and hide out and do things that uh, were not within the jurisdiction of the Jackson Municipal Police Department, even though at that time probably there was a lot of looking the other way. The Sheriff's Department in Rankin County was the local law enforcement officer. So in the beginning, people had to build structures there that were on stilts to keep them being washed away with the spring flood. Once the Ross Barnett Reservoir was built and opened, that relieved the flooding that was going on around Jackson with the Pearl River. I remember flood sales in downtown Jackson growing up where the stores still had basements and the water would come up. I think Town Creek was the tributary that would flood some of those. So it was an area that wasn't really buildable for permanent structures are conducive to living over there unless you did have one of the operations that later developed and then sometimes the owner might live in the facility or nearby, like Red Hydric that I mentioned. He had a farm, but there was also some sort of living space for him near his clubs and operation. As you were describing the venues where a thirsty local could go and wet their whistle. <laughs> I mean, the, the names of some of these joints are just incredible. You have the Blue Peacock, you have the Club Royale, you have the Rocket Lounge, the Shady Rest, the Blue Flame. I mean, I don't know about you, Janice, but I would love to have a drink at the Rocket Lounge. I think I'd just be the coolest cat in town if I did. <laughs> Well, some of the names were made to seem like extravagant venues. And uh, when I've read around, you know, of, of places that were on the Gulf Coast or in New Orleans, you know, just other places outside Mississippi, sometimes these names were brought in because of the exotic sound, the blue peacock, or because it was taking on the name of a place that people already knew that was luxurious or extravagant sounding. The blue flame actually came about because of the blue flame that was in Atala County. I think one of Tillman's places was named the blue flame at one time. But blue flame, there's a blue flame road just north of where I live, and you can only guess what went on there back during this time because it was it was rural north Texas. But the, the blue flame, I think, was copied and repeated 
in several different places. I think the shady rest probably has a lot of connotations to it. I can't remember if it was a quote-unquote package store or restaurant with maybe some kind of um, tourist court or motel type setup there. I can't remember, but it seems like it might have been. But yes, they lured the people in with the names. Now, a good number of these places weren't just honky-tonks or sort of one-room shacks or juke joints. Many of them were actually high-class establishments. The, the Rainbow Garden was a good example. You had food, you had music, you had dancing, you had gambling, you had tables, uh, bands coming all the way from places like Chicago to entertain the guests. Could you describe some of these venues for us to give a sense of kind of what it was like inside compared to, say, a modern nightclub, something we would walk into today? The Rainbow Garden was in Durant, Mississippi. And the draw to the Rainbow Garden was it was supposed to be like a supper club. I had fairly good first-person description of the Rainbow Garden because my parents went there for a hamburger when they were dating. <laughs> they served food. You know, you couldn't just go buy a hamburger anywhere in that part of Mississippi. And they also, of course, had the music you're talking about sometimes with the big band sounds. And this would have been in the 40s that I'm talking about. So that was not the only part of the Rainbow Gardens. There was the wall and the door that went elsewhere in the Rainbow Gardens, and that's where the gaming machines were and probably the drinking of alcohol that was served out in the bigger area, too. So it was a local version of a supper club with entertainment, with food, and with dancing. So how did you get access to the other door, to the other part of the venue? Probably talked to someone. I, my parents didn't go through the other door. At least my mother didn't admit that they did. I don't think they did. But um, it was known. And then you talked to someone who would let you through. I'm assuming, and I don't have pictures of the Rainbow Garden to tell me, and you should never assume anything, but more than likely it was behind the counter where it was not easily accessible without help. And then there was the back door out of the Rainbow Gardens because you had to be able to leave if there was a raid, like there eventually was by the National Guard. Black Jack Powell was the person who ran that with some other Powell family members. I recently had a member, a younger member of the Powell family contact me because her grandfather was a brother of Black Jack Powell and he died when her mother was one year old in an automobile accident. And she had just found out the history of the Powell family and the Rainbow Gardens. So I was able to find some newspaper articles for her and share those. But actually, she, her mother had heard stories about what went on with the Rainbow Gardens and Black Jack Powell and the rest of the family. But they had never read any of the newspaper articles. That was a good thing and a not-so-good thing because I don't think they really knew how involved in the liquor operations the family was or that most members of that family who were around after the raid were arrested. Well, 
it's funny, isn't it? Because in this kind of cat and mouse game of making, selling, transporting, and serving illegal liquor in in this time, um, you know, folks folks could get pretty creative in the ways that they eluded the authorities or deceived the folks around them. And Blackjack is actually a pretty good example. I mean, he hid his liquor bottles inside a sunken metal wash tub in a spring-fed pool. And you write that, you know, to get the, the booze out of the pond, you had to use a concealed pulley system to bring that tub up to the surface to get the product, which was otherwise totally invisible to folks just walking by. I mean, that's pretty clever. Yeah, there there were all kinds of things that that happened to keep the liquor hidden. And one of the accounts that I got from the daughter, who was present but a child when it happened, the liquor was underneath the floor of the living quarters in the restaurant in Durant. And, of course, the National Guard came in with their axes and found what was there, and of course tore up the floor in the living quarters where the family was asleep that night. That person's still living too. There is no doubt that these stories are entertaining. I mean, they're, they're a lot of fun to look at the ways that folks would hide the booze or try to outrun the cops or drop the product down into a, a pond and pull it up with a mechanical system. I mean, there's that's great stuff, but there are legitimate tensions in these communities, aren't there? You you describe service members coming home from the war in the mid-40s, still under prohibition, who drink and gamble away their wages, and they are leaving their wives and their children scrambling to make ends meet. Of course, violence is a factor too. That's all over your book. And Tillman Branch died for his craft. I mean, he was shot while he was selling it. Now, we can joke and we can have fun with it today, but it's easy to underestimate the very real problems that this kind of illegal activity did cause, isn't it? It, it it's to us it seems almost like fiction because it was very dangerous. It was ridiculous in some ways and uncalled for how things happened. But domestic violence was very, very bad. But not only domestic violence between men and women, husbands and wives, but between men in general. It might have involved uh, a woman. But I talked to one woman who, she was the product of a relationship and uh, later relationships with both the parents where Moonshine probably caused a lot of problems in her growing up years and in the family relationships. And she told me that there were six relatives in her extended family who died because of moonshine. It was either an altercation of some kind, um, minor, not necessarily really serious matter, but because people had been drinking and there was a gun. And in Atala and Holmes counties during those days and lots of others, if you lived in a rural area, you had a gun or more than one gun because hunting was a big sport and also a gun for protection because you didn't have close-by neighbors. So 
guns were available and moonshine triggered the worst in people. You know, one thing that fascinated me about your portrayal of this time in the state's history is the way that you write about the ecosystem of the participants. You have the consumers, sure, the everyday men and women who wanted to find a drink, and you had the producers, of course, the bootleggers themselves, but you also had other agents in this ecosystem. You have the sheriffs, and you have the judges, and you have the newspapers who all played a role in influencing the level or the pervasiveness of booze in a given county. I mean, the newspapers are kind of interesting because they they often take very strong stances against it. And I'm thinking of someone here like Hazel Brandon Smith or Hodding Carter, but sometimes they admit prohibition just isn't working. And they say that we just need a better solution than prohibition. They try to cut kind of a third way. As you were researching, how did you kind of map out this ecosystem of all the different players on the scene beyond just the the drinkers and the, the sellers? I think there really wasn't a conscious mapping. It was just something that happens when you find out who a person is, what they do, how they feel about different things, how they react to different things. So the psychology of the actors, so to speak, in this big production that was bootlegging and moonshine sales, there was illegal liquor sold, hard liquor that was bootlegged too. So we can't say moonshine was the only thing that was going on, but it was how they interacted with each other. They had relationships that bordered on business. Because if you made somebody mad with what you wrote in the newspaper, like Hazel Brandon Smith did, then you had the townspeople against you. You know, her office, her newspaper office was burned in Lexington. But a dynamic that changed from week to week, from month to month, with the, the newspaper people, the current sheriff, the person running for sheriff, the religious community, and then the merchants who engaged in the illegal liquor sales. A lot of the illegal liquor, the bonded liquor, so to speak, was done by people who had very reputable and lucrative businesses, and that was throughout the state, not just in the central Mississippi area. Of course, the Gulf Coast is a perfect example of that, but they might own a retail establishment like, say, wholesale groceries or retail grocery store, which put them in the position to be able to get products in and out or to have the right people in their business space to facilitate that. But it was um, a dynamic that changed over time. As you describe these sort of middle years of prohibition, uh, it was about about a call it a fifty year time period in Mississippi. So those middle decades, it, it becomes clear that it is kind of like a game or a show or a stage production in that the raids are just part of the act, right? So the, the cops will come in or the National Guard in some cases, 
They'll bust up a few stills, they'll shut down a juke joint, but within a few months or a couple years, whenever the proprietor gets out of the clink, they're just right back to it. And it occurred to me, it's kind of like, it's kind of like playing prohibition whack-a-mole with an, with an infinite supply of moles. <laughs> Before whack-a-mole was a term, yes. It, it, it was a, a quick fix, at least on the surface, to a problem that didn't go away after the event happened. You're exactly right. A lot of politics, local politics, state politics were involved in it. As you talk about that, I'm reminded of the way in which you write about mixed loyalties among a very specific group of people in the state, which are the sheriffs. And, you know, the sheriffs are supposed to enforce the law, but county by county, it is a crapshoot whether they are on the take too. And I'm thinking of Sheriff uh, W.P. Rutherford in Prentice County, uh, who ended up being recalled from his office for his failure to enforce the laws against bootlegging. How did you make sense out of these? It's it's too easy, isn't it, to call them crooked cops? I mean, it's it's a little... Right. It's according to where they lived and who their constituents were, and this was their livelihood. The other end of the spectrum from Rutherford and talk about um, Sheriff Stubblefield over in, I think it was Holmes County, where he was actually trying to be a crime fighter in some ways. So it went from one end to the other. But if you were going to be a crime fighter and try to cut out illegal liquor and the other things that went along with it, which were slot machines and prostitution sometimes, then you probably weren't going to be reelected. And that is just the fact of the matter. Well, this was their occupation, and they had quite a bit of influence in the community as the chief law enforcement officer in the county. So I think it was a, um, maybe not the intention of some of the earlier sheriffs to get in there and have money available to them because they let something happen that shouldn't. It was more a gradual thing. And we see that in current society with different things. Maybe the person's honest going into the position or office, but then there are too many temptations and they cave in. And then if they want to keep that job, they have to do what their constituents want them to do. And remember, at some of these times in the 50s and 60s, there weren't as many people voting, even in local elections, for obvious reasons, yes. So it was the people who elected the sheriffs Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. You know, you mentioned 
that at this period in time, fewer people are voting in elections. One of the things that we do try to do on Crime Capsule is take the stories from our authors and not just bring them back to light, but also to situate them in American history and in their own context. Obviously, what I'm talking about here is race. And you write in several places in the book that there are a number of establishments serving illegal liquor that served both black and white clientels. I'm thinking of the Stamps Hotel in the Gold Coast. How how do you see the racial lines emerging in this time period? Say we're mid mid 1950s when the civil rights movement is very much in gear. Violence against blacks is resurgent and deadly. Emmett Till is killed around this time. And yet, these bootleggers will serve a man or a woman no matter what color is their skin, so long as their money is green. And that's exactly right. Because there was not any other kind of entertainment. Say the college boys at Holmes Junior College. This was nightlife, unless you went to Jackson or over to Greenville or to Memphis, which was a long way back then with roads that weren't, they were two-lane U.S. highways. I remember those. So it was entertainment. There was music and dancing there. There was conversation. There was mingling of the races, at least at Tillman's Club. I can't say that for a fact at the others. But it was like a commonality there. They were there to listen to blues music. They were there to drink. They were there to talk. But it wasn't as if they were going there to cause trouble. There may have been trouble caused, but that was something that Tillman and his bodyguards or people who kept things from getting to that point, and I'm sure that was that at the other clubs. So as far as the races were going in the 50s, and I remember the 50s from child's eyes, but I grew up in the Delta until I was nine in a very small town with lots of farms around. And there was a respect for between the blacks and the whites. We'll just leave it at black and white. There was a mutual respect between the blacks and the whites that existed during those times that don't very many people talk about because they were codependent on each other. The labor on the farms, especially in the Delta, was primarily black. There were sharecroppers in the Delta, too, a phenomenon that started happening in Holmes County, Mississippi, for one, you know, before World War II. But there was that same kind of codependence in other places where there was farming or lumber and sawmill operations. So I think in some ways the relationships were smoother up to a point in time. We've talked about crooked sheriffs. We've talked about politicians on the take. We've talked about the ways in which folks are controlling power and the money in their cities and in their counties and getting away with it. Of all the lowlifes that might appear in a roster of organized crime in Mississippi, few folks achieved more notoriety than Jack and Louise Hathcock. 
of what was called the state line mob up in Alcorn County. I'm going to guess that most folks listening to us today who've never been to Mississippi have never heard of Jack and Louise Hathcock. Can you just tell us a little bit about their career? And I realize that career is quite a strong word to use in this context. It all started because they needed to make money from a business. So they took advantage, if you will, of all of the traveling salesmen those days when there were a lot of people out there, mostly males, traveling on routes selling products for small companies and big companies. And of course, there were only two major highways through Mississippi at that time. It was US 51, Elvis Presley Boulevard, and then there was a Highway 45 that I don't know as much about, but Highway 45 was in the Alcorn County area in the northeast part of Mississippi, adjacent to McNary County, which is well known for uh, Buford Pusser and Walking Tall. And of course, Buford Pusser is a very big part of the Tathcock story. So the business was the 45 Grill, which was, of course, on the highway. And there was a big sign that advertised a country breakfast. I think I can't do the verbatim now of the sign, but it was a, a country breakfast, you know, biscuits and gravy and ham or bacon, 45 cents. Well, if you're a traveling salesman out driving between very small towns and not very many of them in that area between Alabama, Tennessee, into Mississippi, and maybe headed over to Arkansas. That was a pretty good deal for a big breakfast. But there was a catch to it. You stopped for breakfast, the guy got his stomach full, and then he saw all these people going in and out of another room adjacent to the dining room. So he wanders over there to see what's going on. And there was dice and cards there. And the 45 Grill specialized in gravy and biscuits, but it also specialized in three-card Monty. And the house was always the winner. Imagine that. In addition to spending 45 cents for a, a breakfast that might cost, you know, upwards toward $10 today, counting the coffee and juice, um, he lost his money in, in the game. Not everyone did. You know, they cut their losses and left, maybe. But there were many who didn't. And, of course, there were altercations that followed about, you know, I don't have any money. I can't even buy gas for my car when I'm headed out on my job here. Imagine and you that. did it, <laughs> meaning <laughs> Louise in many cases. Well, Louise was well known to carry a ball-peen hammer in her apron. And one of her tactics was just to hit the guy over the head with a hammer and drag him out the back door, probably with some help of the people working around the restaurant. So there were quite a few unidentified bodies over time that were found, um, couldn't be identified by the time they were found in the stream that was out back of the restaurant. So that was, that was Louise, and Jack was off somewhere else doing his thing some of these times, you know, tending to business in town or whatever. But they were very much the deadly duo. It progressed from there because business was so good at the 45 Grill that they later established the Shamrock Motel. And I think there was a Shamrock restaurant that was sitting just barely over in McNary County. The, I guess once 
so many people have been dragged out the back door and you've done this so many times, making money hand over fist with the quote-unquote game room, then uh, they progressed to bigger and better things and ordered more alcohol and uh, made more money from the motel and the restaurant. And it was because of the motel and the restaurant primarily that Louise met Toehead White. And Toehead Toehead White became her um, lover and confidant, and of course that caused problems with her husband. And Louise eventually lured her husband back after they'd been separated to a room at the Shamrock Motel, and he was shot and killed, allegedly by Toehead White. I think some of that still remains a mystery. And then eventually Louise met her match with Buford Pusser, who knew when the liquor delivery was going to be made and was waiting. And, of course, Louise was always armed with something other than the ball-peen hammer or had a gun nearby. And she pulled a gun on Buford Pusser, and Buford Pusser shot Louise. And that was the end of the story with Louise and Jack. And you write that Louise actually died in the same room in which her ex-husband... Or or made him believe she wanted to get back together with him. Because, you know, there was a lot to lose here with this separation. These two had started all of these businesses and shared the money, and Louise was getting a little bit greedy, I think, in addition to meeting someone who probably paid her more attention at the time than Jack did. And there, there weren't happy endings for either one of them. Let's take a trip down to the Gulf Coast, which will help us link the work that you've done with the work of our next guests in this series on the Dixie Mafia. You write that compared to the Delta and the Jackson area, The criminal activity along the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, Biloxi and Gulfport, and the area kind of along Highway 90, which runs east to west, um, was much more regionally connected than the other areas of the state. You had links in criminal enterprise between Biloxi and Gulfport to cities like Mobile and New Orleans. How did that come to be? It came to be originally because... Uh, being on the water, back when Prohibition was going on, it was very easy to bring a boat, a ship, probably a small one, to bring in liquor to that area uh, all the way over to Galveston because Galveston had a criminal element and an entertainment element there that was very much like some of the ones we've talked about here. So because of all the little bays and ways to hide watercraft, under the cover of night, because it wasn't as populated by any means as to what it was even in the 60s and 70s. So it started that the Gulf Coast was an easy place to bring in things from the Caribbean and from other coastal areas, from Florida all the way over to Galveston. So it was its location that made it conducive, and then later its location made it a place to go and have sun and fun. 
southern United States and pristine beaches back then, natural beaches, and a lot slower way of life with all the entertainment of the clubs and uh, I think there were probably was an amusement park or something there too. And then there was Keesler Air Force Base there. So people who had never been to the Gulf Coast might have been stationed at Keesler Air Force Base and decided to stay or to go home and then come back later to get involved in something that had to do later on with tourism. Yeah, so in this area you had the Strip, which was along the Beach Highway, uh, but you also had illegal activity on uh, boats that were moored in the Gulf. The state would conduct occasional raids on liquor-serving establishments kind of up and down the Strip, uh, some of which were productive. But what's interesting is kind of, as you write, by and large, it was impossible to quash the activity altogether. You just, you had too many boats coming in. You had too many under the radar operations. Again, you had local law enforcement that would turn a blind eye in certain cases or just simply fail to enforce the laws, uh, if, even if they weren't necessarily being paid for that. So were there, was there any way to how how did you see the strategies of of state response differ along the coast compared to what you saw inland or up north in the state? I think that the response was harder to control because of the, let's call it transient population. There were people coming and going in and out of the Gulf Coast area all the time, people moving in, moving out, people who'd been there for a long time. And that's evident when you study the history of the people who lived along the Gulf Coast. So that was one part of it. But the other part of it was politics in general. Campaign contributions came from people along the Gulf Coast. There was too much of a mix between politics and law enforcement that doesn't bode well if you're entrusted with enforcing the law or even in making laws that dealt with the Gulf Coast as far as alcohol was concerned and then wanting to stay in office. Yeah, you mentioned at length there are two names that come up in this particular discussion uh, which folks familiar with the area might, might recognize. Curtis Dedeau and Joseph Garriga I mean, they had quite the relationship, didn't they? Well, sometimes criminals make strange bedfellows. And, and in this case, the section in the book it just gives the whole story there. It's called Bars, Brothels, and Benefactors. Dedeau, of course, was upset with what was going on there as far as Ross Barnett and the infamous 1962 raid. But Dedeau... Uh, actually was an anomaly because he was an educated politician and a lot of the local politicians along the Gulf Coast at the time were local people, you know, maybe not born there. But he actually had a master's degree in political science from the University of Chicago and he had been employed at a local packing plant. I didn't find out what he did. He could have been in the supervisory role, but he was elected sheriff. And then one of his benefactors was Joseph Garriga. 
and Joseph Garriga and his brother Edward operated bar and brothel, actually, if you want to be truthful, called the Silver Dollar Lounge. That's not a unique name. Those are found in probably every state. But it was the Silver Dollar Lounge. And in 1962, Joseph and Edward Garriga were charged with violating the White Slavery Act. And that was an act and a law that back during this period of time, there weren't necessarily trafficking laws like there are now. And some of the others that go along with that, it was white slavery. They were charged with that. And during Garriga's trial, seven witnesses, including Garriga himself, testified that he had paid protection money to Sheriff Dedeau. And protection money is what it was called in many of these places um, all over the state where law enforcement received money. I think that's mentioned in the Gold Coast uh, section too. Received money for looking the other way, basically, or even with more physical kinds of protection if needed. The Silver Dollar Lounge had slot machines, illegal liquor, and prostitution. And because Dido looked the other way, then the place was allowed to stay open. But the jury convicted Garriga and sentenced him to federal prison. And then the accusations against Dido became part of an ongoing investigation. You know, if you can't get criminals any other way, I've always said, as far as the federal government goes, there's tax returns. How many people make even minor mistakes on their tax returns and then others warrant fines and even jail time. But Dido... That's how we got Al Capone. Right. And, and quite a few others over time, even, you know, with the New York Mafia back during the 1980s. But Dado had failed to report his ill-gotten protection money to the Internal Revenue Service. So he was indicted by a federal grand jury, and that cost him his position as, as sheriff. Now, Dado's picture is actually in the book. It's there because this was probably one of the better-known cases on the Gulf Coast, and of course there's more about him, but Dado is believed to have committed suicide with an overdose of barbiturates at his home. So Dado didn't end up going to jail. He never made it to jail. He was going to have to spend two years and spend a $15,000 fine, and I'm sure the thought of that, and I really don't think some of the federal prisons were maybe low-level protection, maybe, as they are now. So he decided that he couldn't take that. And besides, his future along the Gulf Coast was probably in jeopardy after this particular situation. Every good story has its end. And in Mississippi, that came with Governor Paul B. Johnson, who took office in the mid-60s and presided over the move to a county-by-county local option in 1966. It had been about 50 years of statewide prohibition, and Governor Johnson said, okay, this clearly is not working. We have to find a better way forward. Uh, We're not going to move towards just making Mississippi a wet state completely. We're going to give counties the chance to choose their own uh, path. But Governor Johnson's 
administration was not without its own drama. Will you tell us what happened with the raid at the Jackson Country Club not long after he took office? Well, there was a big party going on downtown in one of the downtown hotels. It was actually a Mardi Gras party where a king and queen were crowned, and this was the highest level of society that Jackson had at the time was this event, its own, not a version of Mardi Gras like New Orleans has, but the parties. And then there was the coronation that would actually take place at the Jackson Country Club and the celebration, the champagne toast and all of that that went along with it, where the crowd of people who had been to the event at the hotel, the ball, would go to celebrate. You might call it an after party, but it was actually the beginning of another party. So there was an acting sheriff in Hines County at the time. And the acting sheriff had decided to raid the Jackson Country Club, where the the upper-level, wealthier group of people in Jackson frequented out in North Jackson. So he sent in his deputies with their uh, slacks and white shirts and ties to raid the place. And little did Governor Johnson know that the club was being raided because the new acting sheriff in town didn't tell the governor. So he walks into the party as the raid is taking place, and there's a picture in the book of one of the deputies carrying um, a case of Taylor Brute champagne, and it was a, a very, very embarrassing event for the people who were there that they would be raided while they were about to crown a local businessman and his queen as king and queen of Mardi Gras. So there were women actually going up to Governor Johnson and crying, do something about this. Can't you do something about this? This is so bad. What's going on here? And uh, he told them, paraphrase, that I've made my decision and I'm standing by it. So that was the handwriting on the wall for the local option law being paced. Now you write... As I, as I recall from your book, one of the uh, one of the partygoers, one of the attendees at this particular uh, soiree saw uh, the officers carrying cases of booze, and he kind of hollered out, hey, look, they're bringing us some more. <laughs> That's exactly right. He'd already been to the party at the hotel down, downtown. Um, there was a lot of drinking that went on at the Jackson Country Club. And, of course, the people had already had time to celebrate. But can you imagine being at the Jackson Country Club dressed in your evening wear, mink stoles, mink coats at the time for the women, and suddenly there are guys showing up with sledgehammers and <laughs> because they like to smash the bottles of alcohol in these situations. So this was... Um, an event to behold. It made lots of newspapers around the country. I didn't have any trouble finding accounts from other points of view in other states uh, with this raid. And you know, my mother, uh, my mother moved to Mississippi to go to college in Jackson. She was a Belhaven girl uh, in 1967, and she told me that the year she arrived in Jackson, folks were still talking about what had happened at this particular party, that the tongues were wagging. Yes, and the real problem was that a lot of the people probably were just downright afraid 
that they were going to be arrested in some way for even being there. So, you know, it was probably a very, very um, troubling time for the people who were there. If only they had read your book, uh, Janice, but one of the points that you make very early on was that, um, you know, due to a little bit of a loophole in the laws regarding prohibition, the making, selling, and transport of liquor were the only things that were illegal about it. The drinking of alcohol was never actually declared to be illegal. So if you were caught holding a glass... That's right. It was in your home. I thought it was uh, ironic that one of the deputies looked at one of the men who probably had been shouting or acting up, and he said, I put you in jail for drunk driving one time (laughs) to the party goer. It comes around. So there, there, there were, yeah, there were a lot of pot shots going back and forth in that room, I'm sure. And I'm surprised that it didn't end up in a, a bigger scuffle or melee than it did. Let's take one final step backwards and zoom out from the, the parties, whether they are big sort of official dues that get busted up by the cops or whether they're the small, very... Uh, sort of localized gatherings in, in salons and nightclubs and juke joints across the state. Some folks have said there was no such thing as a Dixie Mafia, that the bootleggers and power brokers and the criminals in the area were too dispersed. They were not connected enough to form a true network of organized crime. Other folks have said that the notion of the Dixie Mafia is best understood in microcosm, city by city. What's happening in Clarksdale? What's happening in Biloxi? What's happening in Hines County in Jackson individually, that you had lots of little tiny Dixie mafias that were operating on a very small scales. How would you, Janice, define the Dixie Mafia? Well, my research has spanned quite a long period of time, and not just for the book, Mississippi Moonshine Politics. What I found is that, yes, they were dispersed. They were in all corners of Mississippi and clustered along the Gulf Coast. And that probably wouldn't just be the Mississippi Gulf Coast. It would be over to Mobile and even down into part of Florida. And I have read that Galveston may have had its element, too. Of course, there's Louisiana, where Carlos Marcellos was. So it's my understanding from what I've learned about the Dixie Mafia, that Carlos Marcello looked the other way when people came into his area. But there was one commonality with the Dixie Mafia and with Carlos Marcello's group in the very beginning that may have brought some of these people together as the Dixie Mafia. And that was the gaming machines, the slot machines, that Carlos Marcello's and one of his business groups in New Orleans owned a company and those slot machines went everywhere. There were slot machines in back rooms in the Mississippi Delta when I was a young child and I know that because of my grandparents. So 
slot machines may have been the common denominator there that got some of these people who were delivering slot machines and who became associated with some of Marcello's group to start their own. And then the clubs and the illegal alcohol, the prostitution and all the other things that went along with these entertainment venues at the time made the, the network grow. The alleged leader of the Dixie Mafia on the Gulf Coast is no longer living. But the people who were associated with him, some of them are dead, some of them are in jail, some of them that um, I can't give you names for are still living. So the Dixie Mafia was laughed at, called the Cornbread Mafia and a lot of other different names, but it was a very serious group of criminals with less than what most people envision, the La Cosa Nostra or um, mobbed fellowship, if you will, or families that clustered more together. And that's not saying that their operations were less serious in so many instances because the members of the Dixie Mafia who frequented the state line area that we were talking about with the Hathcocks, they were pretty vicious criminals. Not only committed their crimes in the state of Mississippi, but in those other areas that I mentioned. I think that the Dixie Mafia was real, definitely. The leadership may have changed from time to time for various reasons, and maybe they weren't as strong a knit, close a knit group of people as some of the other mob groups that have been better written about or talked about or reported in newspapers over the years. That's my general take on it. I'm definitely not an expert, but I think that the Dixie Mafia existed and still exists in some form or fashion. If you say they're still out there, well, then I know better than to go pulling slot machine handles down on the Gulf Coast anytime soon. <laughs> I don't know that they would be the... The owners of the slot machines are involved in that anymore, of course. I, I have no idea what's going on as far as the slot machine industry's done. Other companies may have taken over where that particular southern company existed then, may not exist now. I don't know about that. But uh, as long as some of the members of the Dixie Mafia are still alive, whether they're in jail or not, I mean, one of the better-known people connected with the Dixie Mafia, allegedly, was operating one criminal enterprise from prison. I, I believe that person may be in a different location now, but it's not unheard of for things to keep, keep operating from prison, so you just never know. You never know. Janice, thank you so much for taking the time for us. This has been a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me, Ben. Thanks, as always, for listening. Our guest today has been Janice Tracy, author of Mississippi Moonshine Politics, How Bootlegging and the Law Kept a Dry State Soaked, available from ArcadiaPublishing.com. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. A special thanks to our producer Bill Huffman, audio engineer Ian Douglas, production director Bridget Coyne, 
and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. We're just getting started here at Crime Capsule, and we are excited to bring you the best of true crime authorship in the weeks to come. To find out more, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com. <laughs>